Good morning, High Point. I'm going to work with this for a second. Okay. Let's hear the word of the Lord written for his people. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made, they, then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord written. Amen. Thanks, Femi. Hey, everybody. I was connecting with the worship song earlier that talked about, like, the watches of the night, because I've got two kids and a wife that are sick with a terrible stomach virus, and a three-year-old that woke me up at, like, 3.20 after I'd already been up 19 times, because she had to go potty so that she could go into the bathroom, get on the potty herself, and then tell me that she wanted her privacy. So, she turned three yesterday, so I guess that's what I have to look forward to. When you listen to this passage in Acts 17, there's a number of things in it that we've already talked about in the book of Acts that come up again, because there are a lot of things in Acts that come up again and again and again and again and again and again and again, again, right? Um, For example, everywhere Paul goes, he's on mission. The people of God are sharing the message about Jesus. In every place, there are some people who accept it. There, in many places, there are people who hate it and attack the people who share it. And in every place, the people who share it have to be shrewd about how they handle that and what they do and how they seek for the gospel to move forward, even though people are attacking them in ways that are pretty awful. There's lots of different things we could look at in this passage. But there is one thing that stands out in the text itself that Luke is highlighting as the main idea in these two passages that when we look at it carefully enough, it really should come forward. And that is, the, is actually the comparison 
between the Thessalonians and what happens when the gospel is shared with them and the Bereans and what happens when the gospel is shared with them. Thessalonica and Berea are towns on two ends of a inletted coastal plain in southern Greece with mountains surrounding it. So there's this plain and there's a city. It's fortified really well. It has this big coastal region where you can do agriculture. They're actually pretty close to each other. Thessalonica is bigger, but they're generally similar Greek cities on the coast. And yet, they respond to the gospel totally differently. Right? If you, and you just go through almost everything that Paul says about the Thessalonians, he says something similar in relationship to the Bereans, and it's just really different. So it says that he teaches on the Sabbath for, Sabbath for three weeks in Thessalonica. When he goes to Berea, it says that they studied God's word and listened to him talk every day. Right? It's a big difference in the level of interest and the, the willingness to get together and to find out what the truth was. Um, in Thessalonica, there was this very strong pushback on the gospel. They just didn't want to hear it. Paul had to be very forceful about it and very direct. In Berea, they were really eager to hear the message. In Thessalonica, <coughs> it said he had to reason and prove from the scriptures that the Messiah, whoever he would be, would have to A, die, and B, rise from the dead, and there's only one person that fulfills those categories that could possibly be the Messiah. It's got to be Jesus. And he proved that from the Old Testament, and he had to be that logically forceful because they did not want to listen. And yet in Berea, they went and studied the thing for themselves. They were like, really? And they went and sought to prove before themselves whether or not Paul's claim was right, right? In Thessalonica, it says a few believed. In Berea, it says many believed. In, in relationship to Thessalonica, he doesn't say, these people were really awful. But whenever people go and get a bunch of bad characters, that's the narrative's way of telling you that they're bad people. They just don't want to be seen as bad people. Right? Whenever you go get bad characters to do something for you, that means that you're like the mastermind villain instead of the muscle villain. Right? And so they go and they get these bad characters and they're trying to destroy the— they're not just trying to resist the message. They're trying to destroy the people carrying that message. And in Berea, they're like, hey, whatever, man. Hey, we like you. Even the people who didn't believe. They weren't angry about it. In fact, so strong is the contrast here that the Thessalonians actually are so angry they have to go over to Berea and, and fight and attack people. Right? And the level of hypocrisy is great. They're like, these people who create trouble everywhere. Did you catch that? It's just like angry people to create a big problem with their anger and then tell you that you're a really angry person. Right? Have you ever experienced that? It's super fun. In fact, it, it, it's not only that the Bereans were of a different sort of character, there's also this emphasis that the difference in character between the Thessalonians and the Bereans was actually in some ways critical and in some senses decisive in the difference between how they responded to the gospel, which is not something that Christians generally think of, right? It says, now the Bereans were more no, of no, more noble character than the Thessalonians for— how do we know this? How do we know that their character was better? For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul says was true. It doesn't explicitly say that the character led to them accepting Jesus, but what it did lead to is a much greater difference in how they engaged with or faced the message of the gospel. And this is a little bit peculiar because in lots of other places where Paul or one of the apostles is sharing the message with a group of people, Luke is not adverse at all to say the Holy Spirit came upon these people and opened their hearts to believe. 
There's a number of other places where Luke attributes people's response to the gospel as a direct work of the Holy Spirit. And yet here, he explicitly attributes it to a difference in corporate moral character in relationship to the nobility of their virtue. That's weird, right? Which leads basically to some kind of notion like this if we're reading it carefully, which is, if you look at the implication closely enough, it's going to be offensive to basically everybody. And that is this, that a people's corporate nobility matters in how they will face the gospel. It matters. It's not inconsequential at all. And a person's, it's true as a group and also true individually, a person's nobility matters in how they face the gospel. And if you think about that relatively carefully, um, that's kind of offensive to everybody. Because what it means for people who aren't Christians is that it sits in judgment on the pagan virtue that says, I'm a virtuous person and I hate the Christian message and the Christians that bring it. Essentially what Luke is saying is is that if your irreligious virtue is real virtue, when the gospel comes in, and by this I do not mean a judgmental, annoying person who's Christian in name only. Okay? There are plenty of people who say they're Christians that say stuff, and it should bother you. But when somebody comes and actually offers the message of Jesus, that God is king over all things, he created us for himself, we are made in his image and meant to live according to his character, we have not done that, that is a blameworthy and damnable action that is destroying us from the inside out, that... In love, God has sent Christ to redeem us from that state, to put us in right relationship with himself, all other human beings, and all of creation, now and forever, and to be part of his kingdom. That message, the message of the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done, if your virtue is real virtue, even though it's irreligious, you will not respond like the Thessalonians responded. And if you do, what Luke is saying is, it's not real virtue. Like, there's this whole kind of hip movement right now of, like, sort of like the Christian, Christianity-hating thing that, like, not only is all religion bad, but Christianity in particular is terrible, and everything they believe is actually immoral, and we need to shut them up, and that's terrible, and you shouldn't be one, and I'm going to emotionally bully you and intellectually bully you until you shut up or accept it. That whole gig that has this purportedness of a deep secular morality to it. And Luke is implicitly saying that that's just bull. Because people act like wild animals when they enforce that bigotry. And that should make it perfectly obvious to anybody watching, Christian or pagan, religious or secular, that their purported virtue isn't virtue. Right? Now the second is, for Christians, because the the thing is, is that we all want a relatively simple understanding of what a human being is. And so the, the normal secular simple understanding of what a human being is is to say, look, look, we're all human to err is human, whatever. We're all basically good people deep down enough. And yeah, we make mistakes. And so we should live in a way that inspires each other and educates each other so that the best of us can come out and we can live together as well as possible. And then we'll create government structures to, like, force you and help you, right? And that's, that's, that's what we should do together, right? Christians who have an understanding of the scriptures and an understanding of the gospel tend to have sort of an opposite simplistic view, which is basically, we're all dead in sin. Dead means unable to do anything. And so nothing can be said about the moral virtue or, or natural conscientiousness of an unsaved human being. 
And so therefore, we're totally dead. So anything that we are that's morally praiseworthy comes directly spiritually from Jesus. And so either you have Jesus or you don't. That's really the only thing that matters in terms of moral formation. And so you should believe in Jesus so that he can make you good, and then you will grow in goodness, even though you'll be a sinner, and you should be kind of humble about it. (coughs) And that is mainly right, and yet it can be also kind of unhelpfully misleading. Because when you read a passage like this, the Bereans were not Christians. They had not experienced the divine spiritual action of regeneration. They were not full of the Holy Spirit in the converted sense. And yet, there was a fundamental moral difference in the nobility of their character that fundamentally changed the way they responded to the gospel. What do you do with that? I mean, ultimately, one of the implications that's very hard to get away from is is that this is basically saying that people can have real virtue without God. And even worse— for generally how we think about evangelical theology, that it matters in them coming to God. So normally we'd say, yeah, well, people can be maybe relatively good in some sort of way, but that won't have any, any relationship to them coming to God because God says that we don't seek him. And so if there's something about us that predisposes us to believe, that would actually offend that idea, so it can't be. The problem is, is that Luke says it can be in this passage. Now, so let me, let me see if we can try to walk through this about like how we should understand this, because I think it'll really change the way we understand how we relate to non-Christians and how we relate to ourselves as believers. Okay, so let's try to walk through this. One is to recognize that these two propositions I think are true. That is one, that real nobility will dispose one toward the gospel and against attacking it. That's sort of the attack on, on the non-Christian. What Luke is saying is, if you, your purported virtue is real virtue— When the gospel message comes in, you will be drawn to it, and you will not attack it. And, but then also for the Christian, that people can have real virtue without God, right? Now, what does, what does that mean? In the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards is perhaps the greatest theologian America has ever produced. And in one of his treatises, the one that you'll never read in college because it's too good and professors will never let you read anything that's awesome, written by a Puritan. Um, It's called The Nature of True Virtue. It's about a 50-page treatise. And in it, he delineates between the human phenomenon of common virtue and the divine, regenerate phenomenon of true virtue. And basically what he says is this. Part of God's graciousness towards us is he has set up reality in such a way that many actions of virtuous behavior are also in people's self-interest. And so even though they're affected by the sinful condition, they will do many good things and people won't be as bad as they would otherwise be because many behaviors that are virtuous are also in your self-interest, right? Which everybody believes that, right? Whether you read a business ethics manual from Harvard or you catch somebody talking to a four-year-old. Everybody's saying the same thing, right? What do we actually tell four-year-olds when they lie to us, right? Or six-year-olds, let's say, for understanding purposes, right? Now, what we should say is, sweetie, you were made in God's image, and you were meant to have God's character, and God always tells the truth. He is a truthful being. Everything he tells us, we can trust him, and we were made to be like him in that way, so that we're trustworthy. And so because God tells the truth, we tell the truth, right? It should be something like that. Here's what we really do. Johnny, you know, because you lied to me, I can't trust you anymore. And you know what happens to little liars? 
people don't trust them, and you're a little liar. And it's going to be a while before I can trust you again, because now that you told me a lie, I can't really trust you. Right? Subtext, I'm going to trust you by 3 p.m., and not really hold this out for two days because it'll be emotionally exhausting to actually give you real consequences for your behavior because I'm a lazy parent. But I'm going to say this to kind of give you the idea that people don't like liars, right? They don't trust liars. And so if you want to be trusted, whether that's in getting a good job or getting a promotion or getting into a college or having friends or getting a girl to go out with you, you, you have to be on some level believed to be trustworthy, and so you better tell the truth, right? Which is, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's, that's right. People tend to like when people tell them the truth, even when they lie to other people, Right? And we all kind of have this personal sense of injustice, no matter how, li- how many lies we tell. When somebody lies to us, we're like, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. But also, like, I'm not going to trust you. And so it is true that what we want, that is for people to relate to us well, for people to give us opportunities that require trust, it requires us to be honest. And so that will push us to common virtue, that is doing what's right because it really is in our self-interest. And self-interest could be selfish, that is plotting my self-interest against your self-interest. That's selfishness. Or it could just be self-interest, finding a way from what I want and what you want to be in cooperation with each other. Does that make sense? Now, what Edward said was, that, that is a common grace of God, but when Jesus comes in, he points us to the one that creates and tells us all things that are good, and he embodies those things, and when we turn to God, we no longer only act on the basis of fear and pride, which leads to common virtue— but we have the ability to act out of joyfulness and thankfulness in right relation to God, which creates true virtue, where we do the right things for the right reasons. Now, that distinction is very helpful. However, I think in order for us to really understand the human phenomenons we see, we actually need to delineate a third category. And that is what I'm just going to call today real virtue. That is, it's not virtue in its fullest sense, and therefore it's not true virtue. But it is real virtue, in that when you point at it and you say, that's a good thing, it really is a good thing. And if you recognize that that's the case, you, you will begin to recognize that people can have real virtue without true virtue. You can believe that honor is good for honor's sake, and not recognize that honorability is ultimately derived by God, from God's honorability, and what our honorability means in relationship to who we are and what we must be because we're made in God's image, right? You don't beat dogs for not acting honorable, but you could despise a person for not acting honorable because their honorability is bound up in their divine image, in their humanity. And yet, people can recognize that honor is in itself a good thing, right? There's all kinds of of virtues that the Romans affirmed and were embodied in lots of ways by the heroes of their society that have nothing to do with Christianity. But they are, in and of themselves, goods. They are real virtues, right? Now, they're also not true virtue. Good virtues that aren't connected to God as true virtues are all, in addition to being a good, also divinely and cosmically treasonous and therefore damnable. But they are goods. You can see this partly in relationship to what happens in Thessalonica as relationship to what happens in Berea. People in Berea, they have more than common virtue. 
They do certain things because they are inherently good, not only because they're going to get something out of them. Their character, Luke is saying, is more inherently noble than the Thessalonians. And yet, it's not true virtue. So some of the things that you could, you could feel this is, and that you could recognize when you read these, wait, I know non-Christians that are these things for real. Which is candorous hearing, like, I need you to tell me what you really think. And that's actually something that I need. One, because I need it because it's good for me, common virtue. But also, it's inherently arrogant not to listen to other people honestly telling you stuff. It is ignoble to shut your ears to the world. That's ugly. It's wrong. It lacks virtue. We would despise another person if we saw it in them. We would see them as small-minded and arrogant. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't naturally say, well, you don't, you don't understand common virtue. That's bad for you. We would also think it was inherently wrong because it was inherently unvirtuous and ugly. Does that make sense? Even though it's not true virtue, it's not necessarily rightly connected to God. That's true of equity and civility, that if I'm going to be if I'd be nice to you, I shouldn't turn out to be mean to you for the same reason, right? That people should be treated the same way, not just because I want to be treated the same way. Even if I'm the king, I should treat this person and that person with equity. Why? Because it offends an inherent sense of justice that all human beings have, whether they're Christians or not. And you actually don't need to be a Christian to recognize that. And what that means is you have a capacity to understand real virtue, even if it's not true virtue. And the same is, you could say the same thing in regard to truth, wanting to know the truth, rather than saying, I just want to know what I already think and I want you to affirm it. That is a common or a real virtue non-Christians can have. The Bereans had it. They were interested in the truth. They wanted to know if what Paul was saying was right. They listened with eagerness. They searched out in the scriptures. It wasn't just gullibility. They wanted to know the truth, and they weren't regenerate believers. And Luke says the reason was not that the Holy Spirit was working on them, which he, of course, was, but that they were of a different character, right? And you could say this for humility, respect, moral seriousness, all those kinds of things. Once you recognize that, you can recognize that the unregenerate human being, ourselves in our natural sinful condition, still have a certain amount of functioning conscience. Yeah, our, the functioning of our conscience is going to be tipped and confused a bit by the fact that there is sin that has infected it, but yet it still spits out morally true statements that we know are right. And to the extent to which that is happening, we can act upon them in discipline and choice, which will produce a functional character that is more noble than it would be otherwise. And it is a grace of God that God doesn't just produce through the natural consequences of our sins, and therefore we do it in our self-interest, but in addition to that, there is an unsaving level of nobility that our broken conscience can still produce— that we are capable of listening to, though it's not saving. And what that means is that it, one, restrains the advancement of sins, and it promotes an openness to truth. It can dispose a person to have open ears rather than closed ones, right? What's so clear about the Thessalonians and so clear about the Brians? The Thessalonians were closed. And the Brians, they weren't just gullible right? They were open, but they were also mentally serious. They searched the scriptures every day to see whether or not what Paul was saying was true. They cared about the truth. 
But also one of the things to recognize is throughout the scriptures what we see is a progression of human damnation. What that means is this. We are all in the sinful condition. That's universal. There's a certain kind of sinful cancer we all have in our, in our souls, in our beings. That does not mean, by definition, we are all at the same advancement of malignancy and it overcoming us. Responding through God's general grace, not a saving grace, but through the general grace of the enlightenment of, con- of conscience, restrains the speed at which our sinful nature overtakes us in its passions and degrades us as human beings and closes our minds and closes our eyes and shuts us off. And ultimately, to use Paul's phrase in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, sears our consciences. There's a point of the process of the degradation of conscience that leads to a kind of present damnation, which, which ultimately is like something being cauterized, being seared. When you sear something, you're trying to stop its capacity to get more malignant, but you actually just killed the ability of that thing to regenerate. It's a stopgap. And when a conscience is seared, according to the Bible, which Paul is referring to people who are still alive, they're not dead and therefore judged and damned, they are livingly damned. Because they have progressed to the point where their conscience is no longer even spitting out half-truths that they could respond to. There is no longer anything restraining the movement of sin to have complete control over their character and to entirely wield the divine image to the lowest thing possible. It, it is incredibly important for us to personally recognize. Think about it. What do you say when a teenager, let's say you're, you're volunteering in the youth group, and a teenager says, you listen, I've, I got in church my whole life, and I actually think that my parents are right. I actually do. I actually think that there's a Jesus, and he rose from the dead, and the Bible's true, and all that kind of stuff. But listen, I'm going to get to that, I think, somewhere in my middle 30s. Right now, I'm having a really great time smoking weed and getting on people and, like, having fun. And I'm just, I'm just flat not doing that for a while. I mean, what's the answer to that, right? Now, obviously, there's an essentialist answer where you're like, okay, it's a little perverse to think that by walking away from the God of goodness, truth, beauty, and perpetual enjoyment, who's created you to enjoy him forever, by walking away from that, you're going to find your happiness. That's a little crazy. If you purport to say you kind of think it's right. But in addition to that, If you give yourself to a a decade-and-a-half process of personal conscientious damnation, do you really think 15 years from now you're going to be more disposed to surrender yourself to Jesus and to walk in all things than you are right now? Right? You're, You're already pretty much an idolatrous pagan to be like, yeah, God is God and I'm just gonna do what I want. I mean, that's already pretty far along, actually. Do you really think going further along for 10 or 15 years is going to get you to the place where you're like, oh yeah. And that's why when people say, you know, Christianity is such a, it's just a, it's so bogus. Like, you can do whatever you want, then on your deathbed you can turn to Jesus and be saved. Like, that is so cheating. Well, yes, one, it is so cheating because salvation is by grace and that's, God can do what he wants. He can credit the righteousness of Christ to anybody he wants, even on their deathbed. But also, there is a certain, there is a certain inherent justice to damnation. If you wait till your deathbed, you're not going to believe. And 
that's why the Bible all the way through could say things like, today is the day of salvation. Right now. Right? It, because if you just think, well, yeah, we're all generally sinful, and you don't think that this cancer can progress and diminish you and close you and lessen you as a human being, then you're like, look, I, there is no rush here. There is a rush here. There is. Like, things move along. Your character is always fomenting a momentum in one direction or another. You are always becoming another self. You are always going in one direction or another. And if you are not moving in a redemptive direction, you are moving in an unredemptive direction. It creates a momentum and a closeness and a it puts blinders on, and you look at things, and you're like, you, you look at something that you might have been able to believe before, and now you're just like, I could never believe that. It's not because you could never believe that. It's because your mind has calcified into a smaller existence. You see the world as a circle, but now it's just a tiny circle of your little experiences. And so you have no time for that Jesus stuff. And it's not because the religious people are so closed-minded, which some of them are. It's actually because you're a lot more closed-minded than you ever dared believe. And if you realize that, then you can see how the inculcation of even real virtue, even apart from God, is enormously important for all people everywhere in every place, all the time. It fundamentally changes us because it restrains the progression of self-damnation and it also changes our ability to hear. So when the message of the gospel comes, our ears are actually in some way already opened. Real virtue, like common virtue, is a grace of God. In addition to all the saving graces of redemption. Now, once you know that, you can see how it matters in a lot of ways. In one sense, you can see the tension in Scripture that Paul can say that some have their consciences seared, like they're, they're still alive, but they've already sort of made their choice and been calcified. And can God save that person if he sovereignly elects and chooses to? The answer is absolutely. But God also uses that dynamic so that damnation isn't arbitrary. So that our own responsibility before God can be rooted in real virtue, and therefore his judgment of us has a very clear plane on which he can be right to judge us, even though engaging in real virtue wouldn't save us. He could say that there was noble character. In chapter 17, a little bit later, he'll, he said that God oversaw how people spread out in the world and where they planted themselves. There's no reference to the special revelation of Jesus, the revelation of the divine law, or the Bible. None of that. But he says, just that, he did in such a way so that people might reach out to him and maybe even find him. And yet the Bible also says, I revealed, a, I revealed myself to people who weren't looking for me, and I found those who didn't even seek me. And in Ephesians 2, there's a whole clear statement about where we are and what position we're in before we come to Jesus for the redemption through faith. He, he says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We lived in them. We embraced them. We, it says that we were, we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is a very nice way of saying the devil. And you're like, I... I'm not following the devil. Listen, in the biblical paradigm, there are really, there's only two kingdoms you can't actually make your own. 
In the biblical paradigm, all of creation is claimed by God because he made it, and all of it is counterclaimed by Satan. And you either explicitly have citizenship in God's kingdom, or you, by default, get to be a citizen of the other one. That's the scriptural paradigm. And this is true at the same time. Now, if you want a simplicity, I mean, look, look, Nick, we're dead. There's, there is no virtue in anybody. Like, read Ephesians 2. No, be careful because some of you have had this exact conversation with somebody you're trying to share Christ with. You're talking about Jesus. You're trying to make them sensible of the reality of our sinfulness. You're like, look, we're sinful. Like, we're dead in our sins. We're, like, we're not good people. The Bible says that everywhere. And so this is what happens. They say something like this. So you're saying people are bad. Yes, and much worse than we imagine. And you're saying incapable of good. Yes, any real good, yes. And then they say something like this. Yeah, but that's preposterous. I mean, aren't you implying that non-Christians' parents don't really love their kids? Right? Because if the only categories you have are true virtue and common virtue, if a parent doesn't really love their kids in relationship to true virtue, the only con- context you have left is common virtue, which means they are o- they can, you have to explain their love only in reference to them doing it for themselves. That what they want, they get out of what they do in parenting. And that there is nothing altruistic in it. Nothing utterly self-sacrificial that doesn't come back somehow to their idolatry. Now, maybe that's true. You might want to read Jonathan Edwards. The problem is, is that the argument proves too much, not too little. Once you realize that if that's true, you'll realize that's actually true of us. And it's really humiliating. But what you have is like, I mean, imagine the average mom who's like doing the soccer mom thing, and there's this other non-Christian mom, and she's clearly a better mother and a nicer person. And it seems utterly preposterous to her that that mother really doesn't really, really love her kids in the way that I do because I'm a Christian. And that not only makes it difficult to lead that person to Christ, it makes it very difficult for you not to have crazy doubts. Because you'll come and you'll read the Bible about our human sinfulness, and then you'll turn and you'll look at that parent and you'll be like, there's something so bigoted about my faith. Like, I know, I know Alice really loves her kids. Sometimes I think she loves her kids more than I do. And here I'm like, all right, well, I love my kids with true virtue, and she can only have common. Like, it, it, it ultimately it becomes like this, this like sand on the towel. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, that doesn't feel right. And you just keep moving around, and you're just trying to shake it off, and you just, you can't get comfortable because it just, it just sticks in there. But see, all you really need is to realize that there's there's three categories of virtue. And you can emit to all of humanity the first two. And the second one includes altruistic behavior and the belief in virtue for its own sake, being good for goodness sake. And yes, it's wrong to be good for goodness sake without reference to the God who commands is the authority of and the source of that good. But it also is good to do what's good. And it's not always just selfish. In addition to this, there's also, this, there's also a cultural factor, and that is this. There is this implicit disagreement in the Christian church, especially evangelical Bible-believing ones, in which there are some people who want to be culture warriors. They're like, listen, 
this culture is going to H-E-L-L in a handbasket, and we are, we are accepting all these immoralities, and all these immoralities are getting normalized, and people are getting lessened and squished. They're getting hollowed out as human beings, and they are not going to respond to the nobility of the gospel because we are forming them so ignobly that they don't even have a capacity for human rationality in its deepest, most meaningful moral sense. And hollowed out people don't respond well to the gospel, right? Meanwhile, there's another group of people who are like, look, can, can't we just preach the gospel? Do we, ha- do we have to do that? I mean, what's going to happen is you're going to have your moral views, which is going to have in it your political views, and then some of those aren't going to be Christian, but you're going to think they are, and you're going to backload them into what you call the gospel, and then you're going to preach it to somebody, and they're not going to listen because they're going to see this, like, political, moral, whatever thing that you like loaded into that thing, and they're going to find it repulsive. So can we just not do that and just preach the gospel? Right? Do you see how both of those kind of have their merits? They really do. It's true that when you preach the gospel, if you backload it with things, it can sometimes make it really difficult for people to hear it. But if these two passages are right, what is also true is that there is a cultural predisposition. There is a formation of human beings that opens and closes them to the gospel that is partly based on the nobility of the culture in which they've marinated in. And if that culture grows too far in its debauchery, too closed-minded, too falsely virtuous, and if people are too degraded by that, if their consciences are too cut down to size, if they're spinning too irregularly, if they're seared altogether, and you walk in that and you just preach the gospel, you're throwing seeds at granite. And both of those are true. And you'll also then realize, too, that there's a strong moral factor, which is this. If real virtue is a place where much of this is won and lost, then how we, the church, are perceived in our living of real virtue, whether or not they can perceive it as true virtue or not, is going to make a dramatic difference in how people see the gospel. Which means our real godliness, not our self-righteousness, but our real godliness— is going to make a tremendous difference in how the gospel goes forward, right? So let's end with three quick gospel responses to this. One is, the, bo- the gospel can save anyone in any state of degradation through the sinful nature. The, go- the, bo- the gospel can save anybody. Were people converted in Thessalonica? They were, right? People got saved. So no matter how degraded, how broken, how messed up, any culture, subculture, family, person is, the gospel does have the power to save. If God chooses to elect, regenerate, go after, with all of his sovereign work, a particular human being or a particular group, he can save them, and he is welcome to. And in places like Thessalonica, there are some who believe. And we can never believe that any culture, any people are too far, they're too gone, they're too whatever, there, there won't be people among them who will be saved. That is never true. The second is is that when we minister to cultures that are growing more Thessalonican than Berean, we're going to have to remember that we're going to have to be a little bit shrewd because um, when somebody actually does preach the gospel, that person's probably going to get attacked very viciously, and we're going to have to have a plan for that. 
So their plan was kind of shrewd. So they had Paul, who functioned as the, like, gadfly evangelist, who would come in and preach the gospel, and then everybody would try to attack him, and then what would they do with him? They'd, like, move him on to the next city, right? So in Thessalonica, so like in Philippi, he gets whipped, and they're like, would you please leave? He's like, sure. So Paul and Silas and Timothy go on to the next city, but you know what happens? Luke stops referring to them as we in chapter 16. Why? Because he's the pastor that stayed behind in Philippi to build that church. He shows, he starts saying we again several chapters later when he rejoins them. And then they go to Thessalonica. And so they, they, you, there's this huge blow up. And so, and so Silas and Paul, who clearly are the big personalities, they send them on to Berea and Timothy stays behind. He's younger. He's clearly more timid. And so, he, the, so the people who are trying to attack the church haven't keyed on that we need to kill that guy. So they leave him behind because strategically he can pastor that church quietly while these people are flipping out. And so they actually leave Philip, leave Thessalonica to go kill Paul and Berea. Meanwhile, Timothy's got run to the place. He's like, hey! Right? And so then Paul and Silas are in Berea, and when they attack him, right, they move Paul to Athens, and then Timothy slips in and helps pastor the church in Berea. But listen, that only works if the people in the Christian movement are willing to accept it. What would happen if people said, listen, I believe the gospel under Paul, and Paul can come and hold my hand in the hospital? He's my pastor, and only Paul. You see where I'm going with this? Um, in a, a church like High Point, like, we're, we have to, like, preach the gospel. We have to get out there. Somebody's got to be a gadfly. And I have to do the work of an evangelist, right? I have to get in there and, like, preach the gospel and get at this and do this and think through and read that and whatever. And I can only do that if I have a certain kind of lifestyle, which is going to include hours of study, some real clarity. I can't do all of the pastoral stuff. And so what we've done as a church is we try to gather a group of elders and a group of staff together to pastor people really well. In fact, for a lot of the problems that you may have, they'll be a better pastor than me. Now, you know I don't really believe that, but, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's true in a lot of ways. And so we've got Lloyd, and we've got Mike, and we've got Vince, and we've got people, and then we have, we have nine elders, and we have people who are ready to, but it only works if when Paul moves on and Timothy says, okay, let's do this, people go, oh yeah, Timothy, we'll follow you. And any church that will only follow its senior pastor is a church that cannot accomplish anything on a movement scale. And so I need you to accept about me that my life has to be ministry narrow in certain ways because I have to do the work of evangelist. And frankly, my life has to get a little bit narrower because I have four kids 12 and under. The, th the third thing is this, that cultural, social, and public morality actually do matter. And they matter for people being able to hear the gospel. Now, I don't want to demagogue the, um, the, um, the town hall meeting tonight about that statement on marriage. There's a lot of versions that could come out of that meeting. There's a lot of things that we could ultimately do, and I'm not going to try to control it. Um, but as a general point, I do think it's actually naive to believe that we can somehow focus on the gospel and not be very forthright about teaching, and I'm quoting Matthew 28 now, the Great Commission, teaching people to obey everything Jesus commanded, which includes a panoply of moral, of, of commands within a moral vision. And now you might say, but Nick, it's going to get political. Like, how can you not, and then it's going to be like, we're this or that, and then, listen, 
I cannot control if a government in a society grows, grows statist enough that it believes it controls the conversation on everything. When that happens, by definition, everything you say is political. That's not my fault, and it's not your fault. It's actually not anybody's personal, individual fault. And we're living in a country that, as the state says, everything is, is their job to talk about and to tell us what's true. We are increasingly going to live in a country where all speech is going to be considered political speech. Right? Like, like I, could, I can be sued. There's, there's a lawsuit going on right now in Madison. Right now. Because a church had a staff member quit when they confronted that person because they were cohabiting sexually with the person they were dating. So the person's on staff, they're a minister at a church, they're sexually cohabitating with somebody they're not married to, and the church is like, yeah, you, you can't actually really do that. And they're like, and, th- and that person was like, actually, this is a discrimination issue. And now there is a discrimination lawsuit because that church was like, no, actually, we have a sexual ethic that Jesus gave us, and you can't do what you want with it. It's just a reality that much of what we will have to say culturally, socially, and morally will be heard as political speech. And the only thing we can do besides not talking and being cowards is to be very careful that we are not being captured by a certain political view. So that if I'm going to say certain things about individual morality and personal work and stuff that sounds conservative, I need to be really careful to study very carefully what's happening in relationship to justice issues in terms of poverty and race and things like like that in my country, so that when people want to attack me for being political, they don't know where to place me. And they get all frustrated because they're like, well, we thought you were this. Well, we thought you were that. And I'm like, well, I'm just this. The only way around that is to be a coward and to step back and say, can't we only preach Jesus in a way that is naive culturally? And yet at the same time, wherever really possible, we want to just preach Jesus. And then lastly, the godliness, the moral, the true moral virtue of every Christian that we have accepted not only Jesus, but Jesus' complete moral vision. That we have accepted that we need to be taught to obey everything he's commanded us, which includes his moral vision of true virtue, real virtue, and common virtue, that they all truly work together in the heart and mind of God and can be embodied by us. And we can do it together, and it can be true of most of us. Listen, in the early church in the first and second centuries, it is said among the Romans that Romans had an incredibly high divorce rate, and it was said about the church that divorce was unheard of. Like, nobody could, nobody could point to a divorced Christian. Okay, we, listen, we let ourselves off the hook way too easy on real virtue. Way too easy. We let ourselves on the hook way too easy about our inherent personal prejudices. Way too easy about our sexual ethics. Way too easy about how self-sacrificial we should be towards the lives of others. Way too easy about how generous Jesus has called us to be. Way too easy about how we actually work to be intergenerational people and multi-ethnic people rather than just like us people. We, we let ourselves—I mean, it was—you know who got a hold of me on this? It was Christopher Stinking Hitchens, the atheist. 
talking about George Orwell, and he said, what Orwell clarified in a communist era was that people let themselves morally off the hook way too easy. And I was like, he is totally right. Do, do stop believing in the demonic lie of inevitability. Our teenagers are going to have sex. It's inevitable. People aren't going to believe the Bible on most, most, it's inevitable. G.K. Chesterton once said, the argument for inevitability comes from the mouth of Satan himself. Nothing is inevitable. We need not accept anything that our conscience does not convince us to accept and to which our disciplines cannot be pointed, to which virtue could not be embodied. Even if we were hated for it by all men. You remember, we are not yet to where the early Christians were when they were called incestuous because they married their brothers and sisters in the faith, and they were called cannibals, and it was spread widely among the Romans that in communion they ate the flesh of babies. We have not yet re- reached the point of bigotry where people say whatever they want about us so they can do whatever they want to us. And yet, is our bravery half of what the early church's bravery was in relationship to the dignity to which they lived out the gospel with true virtue in all of its meanings? And ultimately, the only way we can really get there, the only way you're really going to get there is this. If you actually begin to believe the gospel, really begin to believe what Jesus says about you. And one of the ways that that comes across when we interpret narratives like this is you can ask yourself this question. When I was listening to the story, before Nick was asking me a question, but before when Femi was reading it, who did I naturally psychologically identify with in the story? Right? So Luke Zico was doing, um, was doing sermon prep for me, and he was putting together his notes, which of course I don't use because he's an intern. But he gave him, he, we get in, and I'm talking to him about, about his notes, and I said, okay, so Luke, answer this question. When you were studying the passage, which character did you personally identify with? Right? And he goes, oh, because he knew I had him. He knew I had him. And he, I go, so who was it? He goes, oh. Paul. I was like, yep. So you're the hero. Awesome. Right? Right? Did you, who, did, who did you naturally, when he was reading that, did you see yourself as Paul? I'm a person who shares the gospel. I believe in Jesus. I'll go to all places to tell people about Jesus, and they'll treat me like this, and I have to be like Paul because I'm going to be a hero like him. Or did you think of yourself as one of like, the lesser stars, like Timothy and Silas? You'd be like, I kinda, I, I'm, I'm going to follow the bright light or whatever, and I'm going to get in there, and I'm kind of this, but I'm not going to be the leader. Or did you like, you know what? I'm a Christian. I study my Bible. I love Jesus. I'm like one of the Bereans. Like, I, yeah, like, there's a difference, and thank God that, like, I have— Or did you—or did you go, man, I got a lot of Thessalonian in me. People say stuff that I don't want to hear and I blow up. People attack me personally, so I attack them personally. People advocate for things I don't like, so I just try to destroy them. Or I just really want to. I want to get something accomplished that will hurt another person, and I don't want to do it myself, so I think that I'm smart and somehow good when I mastermind getting somebody else to attack them. You see, the only way to really be a Berean is to think you're a Thessalonian. When Jesus said in Mark 4, he who has ears to hear, let him hear 
What did he mean? He didn't mean non-deaf people, right? You might be like, well, those the Holy Spirit had inclined to listen. Sure, absolutely, yes. But God's gracious providence in inclining people to listen can have lots of forms. What inclined them to listen? What, what thought pattern, what convictions, what real morality of hearing has to be operating in human heart? And here's what has to happen. You've got to hear yourself to be common humanity. That in every narrative, you see yourself as the butt of the joke, the deepest of the villains, the one that requires redemption. How many people have heard the David and Goliath story and been like, I could be like David? You're not David. You're not David. Jesus is David. The terrified, like, uncourageous, cowardly Israelites that were totally scared to go out and fight this guy and to believe God that he would give them the victory. That's us. And Jesus comes and kills sin, death, and hell. And we just like run after him and win the victory and do the fighting that we should have done all along because now we're inspired and brought forward and he's really defeated our true enemy and now we can fight like he's called us to. In Mark 4, where Jesus said this, it's the parable of the, of the sower, right? There's four different kinds of soil, and the sower's throwing seeds, and there's rocky places where there's like the path where it falls, but it can't grow, and the birds just eat it up. And then there's rocky places where it grows up a little bit, but it can't really put down roots, right? And so it kind of shrivels under the hot Israeli sun. And then there's a place where there's good soil, but there's other stuff planted there too. And so the, the, the crop is growing up, but there's these thorns and thistles, and it chokes it out, and it doesn't produce anything. And then there's this last bit of like good soil, without weeds in it, and it grows up and produces 30 or 60 or 100 times what was planted. And Jesus says, he who has ears, ears to hear, let him hear. And do you know who the, you know the people with the closed ears were? Functionally, logically speaking, you know who they were? They were the people that thought they were the fourth soil. Do you realize that? It was the people who heard that and said, thank God I'm that fourth soil. Man, I hope David's listening. Because he's probably that third one, poor guy. That inability to listen humbly, that inability to hear yourself as the villain. When that is there, you can't hear the gospel. You don't see the hero because you think you're the hero. Yet all through the Bible, the worst of every narrative is me, is you. The obstinate Israelites. That's us. The, the, the later ones who wouldn't listen to the prophets, that wouldn't turn around, that wouldn't believe God, that wouldn't that put idols everywhere and sacrifice their children rather than turning to God in the temple. That's us. You die. The Jews that went into exile and they wouldn't enter the secular city like God commanded them, but wanted to build their own ghetto on the other side of the city because they wouldn't accept God's plan for them in exile. That's us. In the New Testament, the Pharisees that are focused on doing all the religious laws and doing it all right with no heart for the gospel. That's you. That's me. The prostitute. That's us. Both sons in the lost son story, the guy who took everything his father would give and just use it for himself, and the one who would judge his father because he would love his son after he was a wretch. They're both us, irreligiously and religiously. We're the Philippians. We'll, we'll beat somebody half to death if they're going to come to our city and do something we don't like. We're the Thessalonians. Well, but half of us may be Bereans in a little way. We are the villain. And it's only when you're the villain— it's only when you believe you could be those other three soils. 
that you have a chance, a shot, at believing Jesus in such a way as to not be them. And to believe in and trust in and lean on and hope in Jesus to seek, to seek common virtue, real virtue, true virtue, flowing into your life through God's regenerative work, through the power of His Spirit, through His leading you through Jesus, through the people of the church, through the commands of His written word, that He would make something out of you because you are listening, because you know you're a villain. And it's, it's only then will we ever have a chance of producing 30 or 60 or 100 times what God planted in us. And it's in, it's in that context where we won't say, well, it's a good thing I'm a Berean because these other Madisonians that I live among, they are Thessalonians all the way. And so to form in ourselves the most repugnant kind of self-righteousness that will lead nobody to the grace of God. But when we realize to be a Berean is to realize we're a Thessalonian. To realize we are perpetually the villain in these stories, as well as maybe other things too. Really, in almost any of these narratives, we're supposed to identify with everybody. Because we could identify with everybody. Because we're all humans, and nothing is inevitable for us who believe or who don't. And what that should lead us to is an actual faith in Jesus that transforms too many of us believe that faith in Jesus doesn't do much. Jesus does a lot. The gospel does a lot. But sham faith doesn't do very much at all. But you can right now believe in Jesus. You can right now see that, you know, we can critique our neighbor's real virtue. We don't even have it ourselves. Part of real virtue is being open to the truth. Being able to listen to somebody speak with you with, with you with candor. Half of us will never let Jesus speak to us like that. But right now, you can say, I'm a Thessalonian. I need to change my attitude. I need to be like a breed. I need to be open to anything Jesus has to say to me. If he says something, I need to study in God's written word and see if it's right. I need to apply it to who I am. I need to embrace the leadership that he has for me. I need to go in that direction. I need to become a Brian because I know I'm a Thessalonian. Only when that happens, when the gospel really affects you, can you embrace it with everything. Can there be faith? Real, transformative faith to where our neighbors can see something of true virtue that would change the way they look at the world and in so doing, change the way they hear the gospel. Let's pray. Father, um, would you please help us to be a people that love to be called the villain in stories? that relish in interpreting a story as, so as to see you as the hero, that identify with Paul because we want to be like him, that identify with Timothy and Silas and Luke because we want to be like them. But when we read about Peter being an idiot, that we identify with that. When we read about Pharisees being legalistic, that we identify with that. When we listen to Thessalonians being wild animals, that we identify with that. And that in that place, we see our inability, our lostness, not, not our incapability of being virtuous, but our choice to not be. And in that, to see our deeper need. And in that, to rush to Jesus. I pray that right now, 
people would be believing in Jesus in a different way. For the first time, in relationship to something they wouldn't before, in a sense of complete submission to your rule, Jesus, and not just for some smaller hope of you getting them something or offering them something. I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you would be, you would be inculcating and drawing out faith in the Savior to make us to a people of true virtue. People who can affect the hearing of our neighbors in our city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.